Father, you are great. Yours is the name above all names. And so we lift you high in this place this morning. We thank you that Jesus is King, Lord, Savior, and Brother. And Father, I pray that you would take the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts and that they would be pleasing in your sight. That Holy Spirit, you would continue to teach us and lead us into truth. And that you would help us to keep Jesus at the center of everything we are. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to take your seat. What an exciting morning, eh? Yes. <laughs> Al thinks it's exciting. I can see some other people smiling as well. Um, quite a lot to get through. Uh, some really, I, I think, fascinating passages to read from Scripture. That's going to take a while. Then we'll see uh, how much time uh, we have left. So if you want to start off by turning to the Older Testament with me, to the book of Second Kings um, and chapter 17. I'm going to read from verse 27. Um, Uh, and then I'll flick forward into the New Testament. So this is what it says in verse 27 of the book of 2 Kings. Uh, So this is the point where, for those of you who've been here and have been through our series on the Minor Prophets, Israel are in exile. Some people have been sent back to live in Israel, not originally Israelites, and now an Israelite priest uh, has been sent to help them worship the one true God. So this is what we've got, verse 27. Then the king of Assyria gave this order, make one of the priests you took captive from Samaria to go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The men from Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth, the men from Kutha made Nergal, and the men from Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharavites burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adramalek and Enamalek, the gods of Sepharvim. This is where I wish that I'd got somebody else to do the reading. Uh, They worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt with mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship. To him you shall bow down and to him offer sacrifices. You must always be careful to keep the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands he wrote for you. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant I have made with you and do not worship other gods. Rather, worship the Lord your God. It is he who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies." They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshipping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue 
to do as their fathers did. And if you'd now like to turn to the book of Acts, and I'm going to read from chapter 14, um, and then flick over and read a little bit further on. So this is chapter 14 in the book of Acts. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Then if you flick down uh, uh, to uh, verse 8 of chapter 14, in Lystra uh, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And then if you want to, if you flick over to chapter 17, and this is verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And then verse 21 tells us a bit about the Athenians. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown... I am going to proclaim to you. And then our last reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul, who has just been talked about in the book of Acts, the, the book of Acts is the story of Paul, or of the early church's uh, 
journey and growth and life. And now these are some of the letters that some of the early uh, church leaders wrote. And this is what it says in 1 Corinthians. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Although I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. So I wonder whether you follow any sort of chain throughout those readings or if you don't, don't worry about it. I'll do my best in the next kind of 20 minutes just to explain what is going on here. Um, But just to bring us up to speed, we're doing a series at the moment looking at some values that can help us to live out our vision statement. So in our first week, we we thought about being a Christ-centered church. In our second week, we thought about how we're on a holiness trajectory. Um, Then last week we thought about how we are united in diversity and this week we are thinking about how we are called to be relevant and not syncretistic, okay? Relevant but not syncretistic. Now, if you are anything like my staff team, uh, when I say relevant but not syncretistic, and of course you're not all like that, but they like kind of looked at me and were like, what? What are you talking about? Relevant but not syncretistic. Essentially, what this is talking about is our need to present the gospel in relevant ways without becoming uh, consumed and taken over and only reflecting the culture within which we find ourselves. I became a Christian uh, 15 years ago. And just before I became a Christian, I started going to church. And the first time I went to church was in a small high church Anglican in Birmingham. It was where my grandparents uh, went. And uh, I went along with them. I just, for those of you who remember the story, I just had my kind of drunken disorderly cautions and all of that sort of thing. And I was thinking, where can I go to find unconditional love? So I went to my grandparents and I went to church, although I did not believe in God. And while I was sat there in that church, something struck me. And what struck me is that this church is incredibly irrelevant. And it's incredibly irrelevant for a number of reasons. It's irrelevant because of the way they worship. It just made absolutely no sense to me. Um, And so obviously, me being right, it was irrelevant. Um, And then the next thing I thought is, it's also irrelevant for somebody who lives a life like me. And by that, I meant sleeping around and getting drunk at every possible opportunity. And so I, I promise this is the truth. I sat there in that church that Sunday morning, and I decided, I am going to make the church cool. Okay? That, that's what I th- that was the ridiculously high level of esteem with, with, it, with which I held myself. I am going to make the church cool. And the way I'm going to do that is by making all of the things that I and my generation, assuming that I knew my generation, don't like allowed. And so I, it, it was going to be fine for me to sleep around. It was going to be fine for me to sleep with my girlfriend before I was married. It was going to be fine for me to go out and get drunk. It was going to be fine for me to live life as I wanted it and to have God in a, in, in a little shape within which I allowed him to be and, w- and with which suited my lifestyle. 
And I started going to church. And then a few weeks later, I became a Christian. And it was a miracle of God's grace that I became a Christian through an Alpha course. But I can remember sitting there on that day when I became a Christian. It was a Thursday morning. I've shown you the picture many times here at Southside. I can remember suddenly on that morning realizing that actually, cool as I used to think I was, it was not for me to make Jesus cool. It was not for me to make the church cool. It was for me and for all of us as followers, as disciples, to live out a Jesus-centered life, to live out the life that Jesus calls his true followers to live within the setting, within the time in which we found ourselves. And so suddenly I found myself saying that those things that I was doing, that many of them were not okay anymore. Because I had a new allegiance. Some of them were okay. Some of them uh, were kind of neutral. Some of them were actually quite good. Some of the things I did were quite good. But some of them I had to say no to. Because no longer was I the king of my life. Jesus was. And that's a picture of what has been the struggle for people of faith throughout the years. That's why I started with that reading from 2 Kings. Because what what was going on in the life of the people who had come back into Samaria at that point was that they were wanting to worship the gods who they had always known or the gods who they saw around about them. But they didn't want to completely throw Yahweh out. They didn't want to completely get rid of the God of Israel. So what they said is, do you know what? We're going to take a little bit from here and we're going to take a little bit from there and we're going to fuse this thing together. That is syncretism. And then, uh, and the same happened, and in a nutshell, that's syncretism. I know we're short on time this morning. Um, And that temptation continued throughout the life of the church. It's continued throughout Christian history. We even see it in the New Testament. We see at times when people became followers of Jesus, we see Jewish Christians sometimes saying to Gentile believers, in other words, those who don't uh, come from a Jewish background, now that you're a follower of Jesus, you have to do some Jewish things. And, and, And if you were to read in the middle of uh, Acts, between Acts chapter 14 and 17, where I was reading this morning, there's a thing called the Council of Jerusalem. And at the Council of Jerusalem, the earliest followers of Jesus are deciding what is essential for us as followers of Jesus. What, what is essential and what is culturally conditioned? And they decided, do you know what? Circumcision. If you're a Gentile believer and you haven't been circumcised, you don't need to get circumcised. That is kind of something from our culture that we are putting onto other people. And, and that's just one example. And so then we, if you think about what we read in Paul, Paul from the book of Acts just there, Paul approaches different people in different ways. So wasn't it amazing how in the first little bit that I read, he was going to the synagogue. And he was going to the synagogue, the Jewish place of worship, and he was talking about Jesus within that context. He was finding out a way within the life of the Jewish people. Remember, Paul was Jewish, so he knew uh, lots about the Jewish traditions. And he was saying, okay, within the Jewish context, this is the most effective way to share Jesus. And then he got kicked out of that area. And so he went to another area, went to Lystra, I think it was. And Lystra was not Jewish. And so Paul got himself into debates, or the people that he encountered in in Lystra weren't Jewish, and so Paul uh, found himself suddenly being called a god. They were worshipping the Athenian gods. And so suddenly Paul is having to explain to a completely different set of people with a completely different worldview, this is what Jesus looks like. 
And then we find him finally just in those passages that I quickly read in Athens where he has seen, and many of you will know it, he has seen this, um, this uh, kind of shrine to the unknown God and he takes that as his foothold into the Athenian culture. He goes, in Athens he was also in the synagogue, but he goes into the Areopagus um, and, and he debates with these philosophers, these, uh, these really clever guys, these you know, who know everything about philosophy, and Paul explains in a way that may be understandable to them who Jesus is. And that is the challenge of the church in every generation, isn't it? That is the challenge of the church in every generation, to explain the never-changing never truth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus uh, is King, that, that, that Father God loves and loves and loves, and that the Holy Spirit is sent to give us faith. The challenge of the church in every generation is to make that truth known. And yet the way in which that truth may be made known differs as we learn about our cultures. I was thinking about some positive examples of how the church has done this in history. And, and, a couple, and, and some of you might disagree. Some of you might actually think that these aren't good examples. But I'm going to suggest that a potentially good example of where the church has said, okay, what is going on in our culture and how can we make the truth of Jesus known in it is Christmas. So as many of you will know, uh, Christmas and a lot of the symbols that we have around Christmas has got nothing to do with Jesus. And as many of you will know, if you study your, your, the Bibles and if you read commentaries around the scriptures as well, you'll know that Jesus was not born in December. The chances are that Jesus was not born in December. And yet what happened at a point in Christian history is that Christians decided, okay, well, this pagan festival is actually something that we can kind of hitch a ride on. And, and as we hitch a ride on it, we're not going to become like it, but we are going to use it as a way to celebrate Jesus. Another one potentially, although there's some debate over this, is Easter. The word Easter um, uh, is potentially a pagan word for, I think it is, the month in which Easter used to fall or in which this pagan festival used to fall. And Christians saw it and, and, saw, a, and saw a festival that was celebrating new life and that sort of thing. And they thought, okay, where in our story is there something about new life? And therefore, how might we be able to tell something of the truth of Jesus into that context? And some people would say, fantastic, you've done a great job of doing that. What you've done is you've seen something in your culture and you have taken the never never changing truth of Jesus and who he is and made him known in it. Now, of course, there's a huge danger because how many of us don't fall into the materialism of Christmas? How much does our Christmas celebration, do our Christmas celebrations echo the homeless son of a carpenter born in a room where they're born into a stable or whatever it actually was? Or how much do they just echo the Western consumerism and culture that is around us? But hopefully you'll see what I mean. The gospel which is never changing of Jesus becoming human is taken and fitted in, in a sense, with something that is within the culture. For better or for worse, as I say, feel absolutely free to disagree on that. And... 
really what I want to do this morning is, is suggest very quickly, and we're having to jump through a lot, but you know, I always say, come and speak to me. And so if I don't explain things well enough this morning, please trust that I've done a lot. It's like a maths equation. I've done a lot of working in the background, and you're just going to see the answer just because we're fairly short on time. But come and speak to me, debate with me, be like Paul in Athens and debate with the, debate with the things that you hear and the people that you listen to. But what I want to do this morning is I just want to very quickly suggest some things which can help us as a church be relevant but not syncretistic. In other words, uh, present the unchanging gospel in a changing culture. And, and the, I want to suggest uh, initially three things that we need to think about. We need to think about what we can receive in the culture, what we need to reject in the culture, and what we need to redeem in the culture. Um, so what I mean by that simply is, what, first of all, what can we receive in the culture? What things in the culture are there and are not, in a sense, either... Uh, good or bad, or perhaps they are maybe neutral, if neutral even exists. So for example, and it's a silly example, this music stand, I could just receive it. I don't need to come in here on a Sunday morning and pray the demon out of my music stand. I don't need to come in here on a Sunday morning and make sure that this is a thoroughly Christian music stand before I put my notes on it. It's just kind of neutral, isn't it? Um, it's, and, but then I thought, well, it's only neutral if it was ethically made. And so there are bigger questions. One of the guys who I was reading about this was saying, I'm typing away on my Mac. And, and that is a neutral thing. And I thought, well, it depends whether people have been exploited to make the chips and everything that go into your Mac. But that's, so what I'm saying is we need to be careful about what we say is just something that we can receive. But for example, we can receive things in our culture when we see people working for good. So, it, you know, if my neighbor who isn't a Christian comes along to me and says, do you, do you know what, Nick? We're going down to do a litter pick on the beach. I don't have to go, oh, well, is that a Christian thing or not? I can just go, absolutely, that's great, that's caring for creation or if somebody says you know would you help uh, help help me support uh, aid work or something like that absolutely we can receive that sort of thing there are other things that we need to reject within our culture prostitution for example we support prostitutes, we, we love prostitutes, we try and help prostitutes, but you are never going to see a church that runs a prostitution ministry as in literally runs a brothel. It's just something that is so contrary. I know it's a, you know, it's a bit of an out there example, but it, it just can't happen because it is so far away from what God wants that there is, there is no possible way that the church can take hold of it. So we can receive some things, we have to reject other things, and there are some things that we redeem, which is where we say, there is good in that, it is not wholly good, how can the church work for transformation in that area? I was thinking about the football culture in the west of Scotland. Football is neutral. Well, I, th I think football is, you know, in and of itself, if you've just got a game of football, it's a neutral thing. But the Protestant-Catholic divide in the west of Scotland, the, the bigotry, the hatred that comes up because of that sort of thing, that is not a neutral thing. But it's kind of like, so it's an evil thing and a neutral thing. And so I believe that what God is giving us is an opportunity to speak into that thing and say, it's not wholly bad, but what we need to do is redeem it, make it something that would be pleasing to Jesus. So that's where... 
that's where we work for reconciliation and that's where we encourage people who are supporters of various teams in the west of Scotland to actually uh, dialogue with each other, to enjoy being with each other, to celebrate each other because at the very root of that is, a, is the worship of the one true God. So very quickly, we need to look into the culture to say what can we just receive from the culture? What do we need to re- uh, reject outright in the culture and what can we work to redeem? And I just want to very quickly suggest some ways in which we can do that. Um, the first one is this, and you're, hopefully you're going to start to realize that there is a bit of a pattern every week uh, in this series. But the first one is this, you need to gaze at God. <laughs> Anyone who's been here for the whole four weeks so far will, will know that the first point every single week has been this gaze at God and the reason that we need to gaze at God is because in Jesus we see the perfect example the perfect example of somebody who became God in time and place Jesus became a man in Israel 2,000 years ago Jesus took on flesh in a culture where women were shunned where Samaritan women didn't get spoken to and in which sinners were stoned. (laughs) And into that culture, Jesus said, okay, here are the things that I can receive, here are the things that I need to reject, and here are the things that I need to redeem. I read a brilliant quote, if I can find it very quickly just now. When God became man, he became historically, culturally conditioned man in a particular time and place. What he became, we need not fear to be. Jesus lived out his calling in a time and in a place and in a way which made sense some of the time and which seemed like utter foolishness some of the time. But we mustn't think that the way we have to do things is exactly how they've always been done. Because as we gaze at God, as we gaze at Jesus, we see one who learnt the culture and learnt to speak into that culture. So the first thing is gaze at God. The second thing, and I'm just going to rattle these off and then we're going to sing and we're going to invite our kids back in. The second thing is this, understand the culture. When I first became a Christian, I, I was friends with a minister and he used to say that he carried the Bible in one hand and a copy of the Son in the other hand. And, and, you know, he would read his Bible and he would read the Son at the same time. And hopefully he read the Son through the lens of the Bible. But what he meant was that I, I, I want to make sure that I'm reading the same things that people are reading. I want to make sure, when I, when I first became a pastor, the senior pastor of the church said to me, I was assistant pastor in Glasgow, the senior pastor said to me, as part of your work, you need to read the newspaper and go to the cinema. I was like, that's awesome. And he, and, but, and he was being serious because as you do those things, you learn the culture. As you get to know your neighbors, as you really truly get to know your neighbors, as you truly engage with, with people who you meet on the street. Or I said last week about going out early when you go into town so you can actually speak to people. You know, about actually leaving your front door with your head up and not down so that you might not have to speak to anybody. But we need to be students of our culture. You need to read things that aren't Christian. You need to engage with things that aren't Christian. You need to engage with people who would never dare set foot in a church. You need to be a student of the culture. As you study your culture, our culture, sorry, or your culture, because there's so many different cultures represented here, you then need, we then need to identify what is the bridge 
wedge into that culture. So what Paul does in Athens is he sees the altar to the unknown God and he thinks, hang on, that is a way for me to begin to explain the unchanging truth in a way that is relevant to these people. And the way that we do that in our day and age is different to how it has been done at other times. Who here believes that Jesus died to take our sin away? I do. I believe that. The best way to explain the gospel, that's a, that's a central part of the gospel. It's a huge part of the gospel. It's not the only part of the gospel. But the best way to explain the gospel to somebody in my generation might not just be to walk up to them. I'm going to pretend you're my generation, Colette. And say, Colette, oh, sorry. And say, Colette, Jesus died to take your sin away. Because if Colette is part of my generation... for. No, because Colette is part of my generation, she might, not even, she might never have heard of sin. She might not believe that there's anything that needs to be taken away. And I'm just going to seem like an absolute crackpot. But as I spend time getting to know Colette, I might find out a little bit about Colette's brokenness. Or I might find out about some of the amazing things that Colette does. And so when I see her brokenness, I might be able to say, do you know what? I actually believe that we're all broken in some kind of way but there's a way to fix that brokenness. Or I might see something incredible that she does, and I'll be able to say, do you know what? And I say this to people many times. When they say to me, I'm a good person, I say, of course you're a good person because you're made in the image of a good God. We need to find, like Paul did, the bridges into our cultures. We also mustn't mistake church or Christian tradition with biblical truths. So how we meet, where we meet, when we meet, what we do when we meet, these are all things that are up for grabs, okay? I just want to let you know that nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to meet on a Sunday. That nowhere in the Bible does it say that you have to meet at 11.15 on a Sunday. That nowhere in the Bible does it say that when you meet, you have to sit in lines like this and listen to a lecture like this. Some of these things might be good, but some of these things are going to be absolute, of absolutely no relevance to people within our culture. And so we need to be exploring. We had a fantastic leadership retreat time last Saturday and and we were exploring our Sunday gathering and and the question that I invited us to ask as we went through it was this. What does everything we do on a Sunday morning communicate about who we believe God to be? Okay, so teaching might be good because we believe that God is a teacher. Singing might be good because we believe that it's right to praise God. God, but, but what I'm saying is Christian tradition and biblical truth are two very different things. We need to discern the difference between gospel truth and cultural tradition. We must not assume that simply because the gospel, and by that I mean Jesus died to take away your sin, and you need to accept him as Lord and Savior, that just because that is spoken at a person that they have heard it. Well, I, I love Mission Mania. I love the work that happens in Southside. But I can remember the very, one of the very first years that I did it, there was a youth football tournament in the evenings and somebody would come and, and give testimony at it or something like that. And one of the volunteers came up to me and after somebody had given their testimony, they had given a really clear testimony. They talked about the, how Jesus had saved them from their sin and they came and they said to me, wasn't that amazing? All of those young people heard the gospel. And I said to them, no, they didn't. The gospel was spoken at them 
the gospel may have been spoken over their heads. But those young people didn't hear the gospel. They just heard a very churchy way of telling a truth that we believe, but with no connection to their lives. And let me finish with this. I'm sorry it has run over slightly just because of all the amazing things that we've been doing this morning. But the only offense that should remain is the offense of the cross. The only offense that should remain is the offense of the cross. Paul says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. I think one example of our syncretism as followers of Jesus today is that we don't want there to be any offense So we're quite happy to talk about a God of love. And he is a God of love. He is. And God loves you. But it's also clear that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so even as we seek to be relevant but not syncretistic, let me end with this warning. If our faith is so packaged up and seemingly made relevant at the expense of anything of truth, it is no truth at all. One quote as I read it this week says this, at best syncretism is an immature and compromised faith. At its worst, it is a paganism masquerading as Christianity. We are called to live out true faith. We are called to live out the truth of the gospel, but in a much changed culture. I find that so exciting. If the band could start to just come up, I find that so exciting. I find it so challenging, but I would just beg us, I would just implore, which is such a Christian word, isn't it? I won't use it when I go outside of here. I would just ask us that we would consider how do we keep the central things central and hold lightly to everything else as we seek to connect Christ with the culture that he died for. I'm sorry it's brief. You're probably not. Um, There's so much more. It would be great to have discussion about this, so please do come and speak to me, meet up with me. I would love to do that. But let's make this our prayer, that we will be a people who hold strongly to that which we can't let go of and lightly to everything else. If you'd stand with me, we're going to sing. If parents could go out and collect their children, and then we'll come back in and celebrate communion together.